0: Romans chapter nine is where I would invite you to to open up this morning, which is where we'll be. You know the song "Awesome God" that we just sang. It's kind of interesting how uh, sometimes we can grab portions of Scripture and sort of slap them on a bumper sticker or embroider them on some sort of a wall hanging. And when you really kind of get the context of it, you think that's not really what that verse is saying. Like that's not quite as encouraging as it sells but it sort of creates a caricature of God, or it creates a caricature of what was even happening when those words were said. I think Awesome God is one of those songs for me. I don't know if you find yourself doing this, but um, you know, it's almost like people are singing that like, right after they get engaged. They're like, our God is an awesome, yeah, like super happy. Or you land a backflip for the first time on your snowboard. You're like, yeah, our God, and you just start singing it. And I wanted the guys to do the verses, because the verses communicate something different, don't they? The the verses communicate what we talked about last week. There's two sides of the same coin. Just because one side of the coin is showing, we love the fact that God is love. We sometimes shy away at the fact that God is God. And those verses sort of communicate the idea behind the totality of the reality uh, that, that our God is an awesome God. I really like the song, You Are, that we just sang, and it fits so well with our text this morning because of that bridge where it says that you will call me, you will find me, you will gently remind me of your love. That little refrain um, just has theological implications that we'll kind of get into today, but it also has just like this really uh, great capacity to kind of take this deep burden off of us. Sometimes I think people have a reverse picture of the gospel where they are trying to seek God and he won't be found. He's playing hide and go seek with them and it's all on them to go find And the Bible repeatedly tells us that hide-and-seek is happening, but it's exactly the opposite of what I just described. It's Adam and Eve in the garden hiding from God. Why are they hiding? Because of their sin. And the one doing the seeking, the one doing the pursuing, the one doing the calling is God coming after us. God's sovereignty is throughout the Bible. It's throughout our own poetry, it's throughout our songs that we sing. I really pray Romans 9 actually changes almost some of the lens that we sing some of these familiar songs and go, wow, there's, there's some deep theological truth that supports these lyrics that we sing. It speaks to his rule and his kingship. There's another trait that has huge bearing on what it's like to live in a kingdom with a king, and that is his goodness. If I say to you, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. What's the second part? These guys just returned from Kenya for three years, so they're doing weird things around me, and here's one of them. So let me try that again. God is good, and all the time... That's his nature, wow, that really preaches. Thank you, Hinton's, for doing that. Not everyone's going to have the boldness to just throw in the extra part, but I, I love that. When you talk about who God is, it stirs just huge emotion, doesn't it? stirs big emotion sort of around church people and people who care about these things and study these things and talk about these things. It also stirs huge emotion to those who, who don't even believe that, that there is a God or don't believe that, that if there is a God, that he can even be known. So how knowable is God and much less what is he like is a huge topic for discussion. I think there's a reality that many of our friends, many of our neighbors, perhaps many of our coworkers are rejecting a God that doesn't exist. They're rejecting a caricature of God and not the actual God. You think about a caricature in a photograph and a person drawing a caricature highlights certain really big features like way bigger than they actually are. Um, and then diminishes, and there's no detail, there's no real flesh around the other parts of it. Whereas a photograph is something completely different. And it's interesting to talk to people and just kind of gather, you know, where, where they think, what they think about God. And sometimes an interesting question. Without saying I'm a pastor or anything like that, I I just have asked people, hey, um, what is your view of Christians? That might be an interesting conversation uh, with someone. Just. Just hey, what is your view of Christians? And that leads to all kinds of different conversations. Sometimes they go, well, are you a Christian? I am, Um, but that's beside the point. And sometimes people just launch into things. And so often what I hear regurgitated back to me is this caricature of God, and and they're rejecting a God that doesn't exist. They certainly aren't talking about the God of the Bible. I'm not sure who said it. I forget. I think it was some great theologian. But he basically said this, if you want to love God, study him. If you want to love God, study him. And what we're doing right now is we are in a section of scripture. We're working our way through the book of Romans. And we're in a portion that requires some effort. It requires some study. Charlie Peacock is a a very interesting musician and producer in Christian music. He's been in it for a long time. And there's this project they did called Corum Deo. And it's basically this worship project. And in this one song called I Want to Know You, he says this, Lord, teach me to pray. And not what to say, not how to get what I want. Lord, you understand what I am asking. I know that you do. I want to know you, not just about you. Teach me secrets such as these. The title this morning is This God is Lord of all salvation. Lord of all salvation. And the main point is this, that God acts and wills as he chooses. And as we just heard from that Isaiah passage, no one is fit to teach him or give him understanding. One of the truths about Christianity that some people don't understand and really have a problem with is this. There's a reality that every single person you ever meet is made in God's image, but you must be born again to be in God's family. All are made in God's image, Some are in God's family. Jesus taught this very clearly in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You remember the story. You must be born again. He's talking to a Pharisee, a religious leader. Look at this passage from John 1, familiar to us. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there's our part, receiving and believing, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Every person born into the family of God is born into the family of God because God willed it to be true. Isn't it interesting as we sort of look back on Romans 9 and think about the lineage of promise versus the lineage of flesh and blood, how this passage takes on new meaning. God, you are sovereignly working your grace as you see fit. If you're not in Romans 9 yet, turn to Romans 9. By way of review, chapters 1 through 8 in this book are sort of one big flow of thought. We've identified it by ruin and redemption over here on this side of the wall. We see clearly that salvation is for us, Salvation is not from us. That's part of what Paul is driving at. He introduces and really highlights and expounds on this whole idea of justification by faith. And justifi- justification by faith, as he moves to the argument through ch- chapters 1 through 8, raises some important questions about God's ancient promises to Israel since their current status as believers is, Seems so bleak in Paul's day. Chapter 9 is about Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is sort of about Israel's current state. And in chapter 11, it's kind of forward-looking and hopeful to see some of the redemption God is going to be up to. Paul is showing us that God uses even the rejection of his plan and the rejection of his purposes for glory. And what's that glory? It's that the Jews' rejection of God's plan allows for all nations, the Gentiles, to get grafted in to this new, multi-ethnic, grace-driven family that God is building. So if you are a Gentile of nature, that is, anything non-Jewish, your family tree, the way you got grafted in, is being talked about right here in Romans 9. God's using the rejection from his own people that should have been first in line to graft us in to the story. He's already covered in chapter 9, the time of the patriarchs. Remember the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When you hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that ought to sort of be shorthand in your mind for that's the gospel. That's a picture. That's a foreshadow of the gospel. Each of those was chosen. Abram was chosen. Many were passed over. Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was passed over. And Jacob was chosen over Esau. He then moved on to the time of the Exodus. We looked at that last week, and the rebellion of Pharaoh, and the mercy to Moses. And today, just think Jewish history, we're moving on from the Exodus time, and we're moving on to the time of the prophets, which point to God keeping his word. This rejection section that we're in, chapters 9 through 11, is about Israel. We need to keep that lens, or else what happens is this we can sort of get off into all kinds of crazy theological rabbit trails. And we'll play this sort of, yeah, but what about this? and What about that? And if we don't keep that lens that Paul is addressing specifically Israel, it kind of begins to do that. I want to talk to you this morning, because I think the text breaks up this way in two sort of movements, and your notes sort of reflect this. The first movement is the parable of the potter, and then the second movement is the poetry of the prophets. As Paul builds the argument, questions arise in his listeners' minds. There's something sort of positive. If your mind is tracking with the argument that Paul is having, then when he raises a question, you go, yeah, what about that? And and it's like, that's where your brain landed as well. Look at verse 6. He raised this question preemptively. Has God's word failed? He answers it succinctly. No, it hasn't. Verse 14. Is God unjust? No. No. And that leads to two more questions in verse 19. They both show up in 19. Why does God find fault if he's in charge? And who can resist his will? So if you're reading through Romans and these questions aren't coming up in your mind, it almost would be good to go back to the beginning of the argument and go, that question didn't even enter my mind. Where did I I miss what he's building toward? But if you're landing on these questions, those are benchmarks that you're, you're sort of tracking along with what Paul is teaching The message translates Romans 9.19 in this way. How can God blame us for anything since he's in charge of everything? How can God blame us for anything since he's in charge of anything? That's the gist of what's being asked in those two questions. Isn't this the kind of question that finds friends very, very quickly? If you were to just kind of throw this out at at the office lunchroom tomorrow, hey, how can God blame us for anything if he's in charge of everything? I mean, you'll get people very... Yeah, what about that? Yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought about it that way. It's just this sort of mob mentality that sort of rallies around a statement like that. And what's interesting is I sort of thought, why is that? I think that that um, sort of reveals our depraved, overconfident selves. It really does. It's sort of like, it's sort of like yeah, we, we think we have a foothold against God now, and, and I, think I, I think I should be able to do what I want, or I think I shouldn't be blamed for what I'm doing. What about that? Remember that confidence is that feeling you have before you understand the situation. Here's the short answer to those questions raised in, in, uh, in verse 19. It's found in 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Just those two verses, we could pause right now, close our Bibles, pray, ask forgiveness for a haughty heart, ask forgiveness for the fact that we're not competent to stand trial on the judge of the universe, and dismiss. And I think there's enough lesson in those two verses that would humble my own heart and and lead me forward. We would be... doing well to remember um, how this line of reasoning went for Job. Think about Job for a second. God did have a plan and a purpose, even in his pain. In fact, I would argue because of his pain. What was his wife's advice? Curse God and die. (laughs) There's times in marriage you just need to be faithful to your vow. It's not because it's just such a gem of a wisdom coming back at you. <laughs> Life stings for you, Hubby, right now, but curse God and die. How about the advice of his friends? They come to him, and one after the other, it's not good advice. They don't understand what's going on. They are assessing and reading things that they know nothing about. They're really driving into Job introspection and saying, Surely God is punishing you. For your sin. And midway through the book, maybe three-quarters of the way book, finally Job questions God. And do you remember what happens? Do you remember how that line of questioning went? Jesus often would answer a question with more questions of his own. And it had this way of silencing the questioner. They didn't drive to the to the answer that they wanted. God answers Job's questions with more questions of his own, doesn't he? And in doing so, he lovingly and soundly reminds Job of this truth. I am maker. You are the made. I'm the creator. You're the one who's been created. He doesn't go in and fill in Job with all the details of what he's doing. Let's read on in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." I want to bring you back to the tension that we opened up with last week or introduce you to it if you didn't get a chance to listen last week. Is God sovereign and acting out his divine will or are people responsible and choosing to exercise their own free will? One group stresses the sovereignty of God while another group stresses the responsibility of people. You may have heard terms such as Calvinist and Arminius. These are named after people who were proponents of these two sort of sides to this tension that we see in Scripture. A Calvinist emphasizes God's choice, and Arminius emphasizes our choice. Is salvation people's choice or God's choice? The word predestination is linked with Calvinism. It's linked with sovereignty of God and his choosing us. And the term free will is often heard linked with man's responsibility. Here's one of the fascinating things as I've continued to work through Romans now on a deeper level, trying to be prepared uh, to teach it on a Sunday morning, and that is this. Paul does not go back and provide airtight logical explanations for these two tensions. In a different part of church history, um, churches divided. They ripped over this issue, and it was a divisive issue. I'm glad that's no longer the case. Here's the extreme I feel like we're sort of moving toward. There's a lot of people who don't even understand this tension at all. It's good that we don't divide over this. It's also good that we wade into this. This is not an easy, devotional, feel-good passage. I don't want to leave you with a warm, fuzzy, our God is an awesome Yes, He's just loving. And we walk out, and life smacks us across the face, and we sort of blindly hold out hope that God is love. I want to give you the gift that God is sovereign. And I want to actually hold up in Scripture. If, if the Scriptures hold up this truth, And they hold up this truth, and it's very challenging for our brains to logically figure out all the different implications of those two things both being equally true. I want to just be a messenger this morning, and this is actually what Paul does. One of the greatest minds, no matter what you think about Jesus Christ, most would agree, Paul is one of the most amazing minds in history. And he doesn't try to to rectify all the logical issues that sort of come up. Ben and Laura and Becky and I got to go up to Hume Lake this week, Monday through Thursday, for an annual pastor's retreat, and it was just an incredible time of refreshment. Um, We had morning and evening speakers and worship and some breakouts, and every meal you're just sort of talking with different ministry servants from around California. And I was so thrilled because the guys from Valley Church were there, Um, and so we got to share some time just connecting with this church that 11 years ago now um, planted this church and picking their brains. And one of the guys that's still there, he was the chairman of the board when I started at Valley Church in 1998. And, uh, and I was talking about Romans 9 and, and picking his brain a little bit. And he said this. He sort of got saved in the hippie movement, you know, lived in the commune hills of Los Altos. And he said, Dave, I remember reading as a new Christian, and I got to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and, and he said, I sat there and really wrestled with the implications of this. God, does this mean that if you're really sovereign, that that it's all just predetermined and it doesn't matter what we do? Is, Is that what this is saying? And he said, as I read these passages and tried to get my head around it and really dug in deep, he said, I sensed the Lord saying to me, will you also forsake me? And he said, my immediate response was, Lord, no. To where else would I go? You alone have the words of life. I'm not about to run from you in this. I'm I'm, going to lean in deeper into you. And as I thought about his words the next day and then the next day, and I'm just sort of mulling around and thinking about you guys, I, I sat here and I just thought, oh, that we would all sort of go through the difficult spiritual development phases where we wrestle deep, with the things of God that don't immediately fit our current picture of God. Oh, that we would wrestle back and forth and come out the other side with a stronger bond of love, a deeper trust, and a better relationship with God because we haven't avoided parts that we think we might not like about God. That's been my prayer for you as we wander into this. Thank you for following us into Romans 9. Your presence here, knowing we're going to be in Romans 9, communicates a lot to me. I'm excited about that. Movement 1 is the parable of the potter, and he's been talking about this. And um, one of the things that is really important to keep in mind is this. Um, No matter what translation you're reading from right now, you have to remember it is a translation from original language. We hold to this doctrine that in the original language of Hebrew and Greek, the, the words are inspired that God wrote a book and he chose to write it through people and he used their writing style, he used the context that they wrote and he used the audience that they had in mind and he used their verbiage and he inspired them. He carried them along in the Holy Spirit such that what emerged is this cohesive book of the Old and New Testament. Here's the problem with translation. Some of you have worked with translation. Some of you know a little bit of two different languages. And you know that there's multiple ways to say things in one one language and then translating it into another language. There are always choices being made in any translation. So whatever English translation you are using, you have had someone filter the original language and make choices about how do we communicate that. And an interesting way to study a passage of scripture, by the way, is this. Bible programs make this really, really easy, but if you're old school, you would open up about five or six translations to the same passage, and you would read them. Much of it reads very, very similar, and that at a a few key parts, they are wildly different. They are translated totally differently. I'm doing this because my Bible program sort of says here's where they line up and here's where, you know, NIV and ESV are up here and New King James and something else is down here. That's the part. If you want to know where to study in a passage and kind of go do some word study and sort of tiptoe or wade into that kind of study, that's the part you would go to first. Where do the translations vary and why are they making these choices? I'm going to take time this morning to highlight one thing in this passage about the potter and the clay to sort of get our heads around it. I think that ESV and NIV agree. I know that they agree. And I think they nail the translation of this to better communicate what I've seen in the original languages these words to mean. Look at verse 22. It says that there are vessels prepared for destruction. The word prepared is, is in the Greek middle voice. And so it's, it carries this meaning. That man fits himself for destruction. The one doing the preparing is man himself and not God. Look down at verse 23. It very specifically says this. He has pre- prepared beforehand these vessels of mercy for glory. So in verse 22 it says prepared for wrath. In verse 23, he has prepared beforehand for glory. Prepared for destruction, and the fact that man does that to himself harkens back to Romans 1, doesn't it? Where God is pulling back from people as they hardened themselves. They are running hard after sin, and God is just giving them over to what they are running hard after. Here's the teaching that lines up with with the rest of Scripture, that God is the Lord of salvation. Hebrews says it this way, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me give you an illustration that's helped me this week to sort of get around this idea of what it means that man orchestrates his own destruction and that God orchestrates salvation. I want you to imagine for a second that five of your friends make the really poor choice to plan to rob a bank. I used to be a bank teller and I like to entertain you with stories of our branch being robbed seven times in the seven years that I worked there. Sadly, I was only there for one of them. I wanted to be there for more of them. (laughs) But it makes for an interesting shift when the FBI is there and they're dusting and I'm like, sweet, we got robbed again. You know, usually our manager buys us lunch. Those are my priorities as a poor college kid. (laughs) Five of your friends decide to rob a bank. You beg with your friends, please don't do this. Please don't do this. This is going to ruin your life. This is wrong. You beg and plead and there's tears. And despite all of your warnings, despite all of your pleading, everything you can possibly think to do, they are going to go through with this plan. And on the way out the door, you tackle one of your friends and you wrestle them to the ground and you hold on for dear life and you just hang on to those, to to that person. Four others go through with the plan. They rob the bank. They They then get caught. They stand trial. And they're sitting in prison. Now go back to the one friend for a second. How silly would it be if that friend touted his own good choices, his own pure heart, for his freedom? That wasn't the case. The case was that he was held back from doing what he was, and I don't use this term lightly, hell-bent on doing. That is a picture of God's intervention. That we are all read the verdict of guilty, and brought to justice unless God offers some sort of intervention, some sort of salvation. God has chosen to call, and another way to think of call might be to intervene on both Jews and Gentiles. As a believer, we can, with Paul, be eternally grateful that we know the riches of his glory because he's made us vessels of mercy. So God is not only a sculptor, but a poet. Let me move on to sort of movement two here. He inspires two different prophets to cry out lament and warning. The first is Hosea, found in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God, as you study prophecy, you understand that often there is an immediate context and there's some immediate fulfillment, um, but oftentimes there's future fulfillment at sort of a greater uh, a, a greater context. Paul is applying to Gentiles what was initially true of the Israelites. God is forming this brand new covenant family by calling them. And here, it's to non-Jewish masses who were not a people. They were a hodgepodge of race and ethnicities, and he is calling them out of that into the people of God. This is the church. We are made up of this call. Next, in verse 27... He moves to look at this remnant of Israel. Remember last week we talked about there's always this this true Israel within the greater ethnic Israel. It's the remnant that God is saving. And he reaches back to the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So he shifted from Gentiles to Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you hear the intervention? This is the prophet crying out. If God hadn't tackled you, you'd be in prison right now with your buddies. That's what you were hell-bent on doing. But God has preserved a remnant. Gentiles get to be called my people and beloved, according to Hosea. And Israel gets in on the number of the saved, though only a remnant, and more of that is coming in chapters 10 and 11. The current state, only God is sustaining this remnant from being wiped out, is what Isaiah is saying. Because he is the Lord of all salvation. This passage is about Israel, and I highlighted that at the beginning. And if we don't keep that lens, then then we kind of get lost on things. But it's interesting in this passage that Paul is calling out very specifically to us Gentiles who aren't a part of ethnic Israel. If you are in Christ today, it is due to God's grace. It really harkens back to the end of chapter 8. Just listen to 829 or flip over a page if you want. It says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the thread? Calling, sanctification, justification, Glorification, all woven in here. God is the Lord of all, and that includes the way of salvation. So how do we fit our responsibility into this? Well, there's more coming on that, but consider this redemption story that God is writing. Think for a minute about all we can already look back on and know. Redemption carries with it this theme, that God is good, and because God is good, He is setting things right that were utterly ruined. We have Job given to us. There are secret things that belong to God, and there are revealed things that belong to us. Job is a powerful story. He didn't see that in his short time on earth, he would display God's power and mercy and sovereignty, for centuries Job never had as far as we can tell God never whispered to Job Job it's going to be okay your little short journey on earth is going to encourage millions of sufferers of the fall for a millennia to come know that it's worth it know that I'm working we don't ever see God whispering that to Job we don't know that Job ever knew that but that statement is true Job has been a source of comfort for many of you that say, God, there is a curtain that I don't get to look through and I don't get to understand, but I trust that you're in control and working for your good and glory. You know who saw it? God did. God saw it, and he acted, and he didn't ask for Job's permission. He didn't ask for Job's input, and he didn't even give Job the details of what he was doing. My fellow pottery, I think we should learn from this. I think we ought to rest in the potter and his will. God's creative hands didn't stop when he formed you in your mother's womb. He's still shaping. He's still uh, creating in you. He saw you then, and he sees you now. What's powerful is that we have this part to play. The scriptures don't leave us just as robots, where we just sit there and and are a, a lifeless lump of clay where the imagery breaks down is this. Yes, he creates simple pots, but these pots that he makes have a will and have emotion and have intellect, all in God's image, and that's us. Quick Jewish history lesson. As the Jews had left uh, Egypt and were on the exodus, they had run out of water, which is a problem uh, in the desert. And they grumbled against God, and they griped against Moses. And God provided, but God didn't take lightly their griping and grumbling and unbelief. And what happens in this passage of Hebrews, that if you want to turn there, it's Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, I want to read for you a passage that's really telling about God's view of unbelief and also about our role in the hardening of our own hearts. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Hebrews 3.12 Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end. Verse 15, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And catch this ending line in verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. A few points to make. Church, take care because unbelieving hearts lead to falling away from God. A part of what we're doing right here is we're exhorting one another every day while it is still called today. We are reminding one another of the deceitfulness of sin and the consequences of an untrusting, griping heart that stands in judgment of the divine judge. We're clearly given instruction in this passage and in other places to take an active role in our own soul. And I love that it's not blind faith that God asks us to. He routinely points us back to history. Did I not provide? Did I not say I was going to do something and then follow through? We are left with the same witnesses, church. We're left with a history that we can go back, and God is not asking for blind faith. Christianity is not a religion of blind faith. Go back and see the track record of God coming through on his promises. Rejection is the sad state of a vast number of ethnic Jews today. There always has been and there always will be a remnant, an Israel within ethnic Israel, and God is still working with Israel. We, the children of God who make up the people of the church, Look forward to how he's going to resolve this. And in Romans 11, we're going to get more into just some pointers of of Lord willing and just how he's going to work it out, we don't know. There's mystery there. But God bringing large numbers back to faith. I want to close by pointing this out to you. This image on the screen is instructive all of its own. That picture was taken this week. I was up at Hume Lake, and Becky and I were on a bike ride, and it was taken on a part of this trail up near Kings Canyon National Park that was closed last year, because two years ago, a fire ravaged this part of the forest. And some of you can remember this, but we were just praying daily, God, would you spare Hume Lake Christian camp You've had your hand on this place for over 50 years. Many important decisions have been made in my own life, in my wife's life, and countless of youth who have come through that, that place. And if you kind of drive in, what you see is you see this line right at the dam of Hume Lake where the fire comes up and it stops literally within feet of the lake itself and Hume Lake's property. It's this phenomenal picture of God just holding back the flames. So here we are riding a couple of miles into this section that only two years ago was ravaged and closed off due to fire. This fire made all seem lost, and yet somehow there was this strange beauty as we rode through to see all these burned sticks that used to be beautiful trees and then new growth that was kind of happening in amongst it. And then even more powerful for our passage, because we just walked through this, clumps of trees that were green as could be, surrounded by ravaged fire. And you just envision, how could that be? This whole thing is up in smoke, and yet this little patch of four trees amongst hundreds is doing just fine. Growth mixed with scars. Secondly, it's a path. We know from Scripture there is a path that leads to salvation. It's a path of faith. We don't get to see very far. That thing goes around the corner. We don't know what's around the corner. There's a certain act of faith that we see in this picture. I intentionally put the word Lord of all salvation in a pixelated annoying font. Does that font annoy you? I don't like it. You know what that instructs me? instructs my heart of this. Even though it's not a pleasant font that I'm not necessarily um, fond of or think is easy to read. This is a picture of God's working in salvation. God, I don't necessarily like and I don't think it's easy to read how you're working your good, redemptive plan. But I trust you. And even more importantly, I add nothing to the equation. I cannot instruct you in this. I cannot teach you anything about this. The tagline that God is creator He's a sculptor and he's a poet. Reminds me that he's still making beautiful things. And finally, those two circles are how, um, are how the message sort of translates this prophecy from, uh, from Hosea. That God, is, that God is forming people. He's calling nobodies somebodies now. And those two circles, Jew and Gentile, form an eternal family that will never go away. And if you're taking notes, jot these down. We've been wrapping up each section of Scripture with, God, what is it that you do so I can be crystal clear on that? And is there some action that I should do? What God does is that he continues to work his mysterious creative plan. That is what God does. He's good at it. We aren't. God also reminds us that he's in control. We're saying that God God gently reminds us of his love. You know what? Sometimes he forcefully reminds us of his love. Parents, is that true? Sometimes you forcefully remind your kids of your love and your plan and your purposes. And sometimes you do it gently and you woo them. And the reality is there's two sides to the same coin. God is Reminding us he's in control. Here's what we do. We keep our hearts soft toward God through belief. That is, we cooperate with the call of God in our life. If you find the cross beautiful and Jesus wonderful, that is a spiritual thing that's been given to you. It's been revealed to you spiritually. The flesh doesn't find it all that great. So we cooperate with the call of God by keeping our hearts soft through belief. And secondly, we stare at God. Sometimes staring at God means we study Him, and we use our intellect, and we sort of, you know, grind our brain to go, how can this fit, and what about that, and is, is God unfaithful, and, and has His word failed, and is He unjust, and all these different questions. Sometimes staring at God means we just meditate on Him. We find ourselves pondering him as we are in traffic and thinking about him. And sometimes it's staring at God like, like the eyes of a child on their parents, watching them. I love when I catch my kids sort of mimicking, you know, sort of how I'm sitting or how a pen might be behind my ear or talking on the phone. Or I see Everly walking around like this, you know, vacuuming or something. Sometimes our staring at God is that we're just, we're just children saying, God, show us who you are. We just want to mimic you. We know you're good. We trust you. We want to be like you. It keeps us from settling for a caricature of God. I want you to sing along. We've, we've sung this song before, but it's also one of those songs that if you want to sit and just sort of let the lyrics wash over you and teach you and sort of stir in your own hearts and put into words questions you might be asking, feel free to, to do that as well.